Dr. Lise Alshala will return to Australia to deliver her must-see seminar, Managing the Drivers of Cancer. The series will run in Australian capital cities from the 13th to the 24th of November, 2017. You can learn more about Lisa's comprehensive prevention and management strategies by attending this vital seminar. For more information, please go to bioceuticals.com.au and click on the Education tab. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me in the studio today, again, is Dr. Mark Donohoe, uh, an integrative physician of great renown who graduated in 1980 from Sydney Uni, worked around the Central Coast, and where, this is where his interest sparked for integrative medicine because patients just weren't fitting into the boxes of diagnoses and treatment. And I always love talking to you on FX Medicine, Mark, because you bring technical subjects, but you bring them back to what it means for the patients. And indeed, for a, you look at the function of dysfunction. Yeah. So I warmly welcome you back to FX Medicine once again. It's a pleasure. I, I have to do it that way because I'm a clinician and a proud clinician. So clinicians see the world differently from researchers, from other people. We touch, we touch occasionally and then that transfer of information from research to clinicians mainly, you know, doesn't work, but sometimes you get really neat stuff. And this, what we're talking about today with symbionts and uh, pathobionts, this is fantastic. This is where the researchers and the microbiome and the clinicians really come together for a very, very powerful way. What we see in practice is going on in the gut and the gut is programming immunity and it's just a brilliant story. So this, uh, again, like symbionts and pathobionts. So let's first go into a brief definition mm. of what these are. Well, symbionts are probably easier to understand. Symbionts are organisms that exist in the gut. Like we're just keep it uh, to the gut at the moment. These exist in all cavities and on the skin all around the body. But a symbiont is an organism that we regard as generally friendly to us, where we gain from their presence, they gain from our presence, and we leave each other alone and there's no dramas about it. And so we th see symbionts a little bit like allies in a war on other organisms, that they and, uh, and we work together to maintain gut immunology, gut integrity, absorption and nutrition, and everybody wins. Pathobionts are a different group. We've been kind of putting them in the, in the category of these are not like we think of infection and invasion with the systemic immune system. Pathobionts are bugs that exist in a more tenuous relationship with us, that if all is going well, they have an important part to play in the ecology of the gut. But if things go bad, they turn against us. And pathobionts are therefore not invading organisms because they're there all the time. But when things go wrong, these are ones that turn on more aggressive immune responses. So the pathobionts are not invaders. They're there all the time. They're almost like, you know, terrorist cells. They are ready to go off at some time mm -hmm. if we disregard and disrespect the ecology of the gut. And that's why the story is so fascinating. All the bugs inside us at various times are symbionts. 
some of them have the capacity when we misbehave, when we torture them with antibiotics, when we change our <laughs> diet, them. when we give tons of sugar, they have the capacity to go off in a way that teaches us a lesson. Mm. And you can even make the case, and I do occasionally, that humans are nothing more than a block of flats constructed for the benefit of the bacteria in the gut. They outnumber us, the genetic diversity is greater, and they play such an important role in things like our cravings, what we eat in our diets, our behaviour, that you can make the strong microbe case that we were constructed by microbes. Mitochondria put in the cells, eukaryotic cells, really functioning as a result of bacterial interactions. They constructed us to feed them and to... Um, both benefit and live a long life to construct an environment for microbes. Let's go back to birth or near birth, an organism that greatly interests me, segmented filamentous yeah. bacteria. I mentioned these like you mentioned stewed apple. I know. <laughs> now, uh, now the, the SFBs, I think, have become SFBs. your signature. <laughs> and I think that there was something in your childhood that has happened <laughs> and we're not going to go into that today. But there, there's something like I remember when I first saw this work by um, Dan Littman and Ivalio mm. Ivanov. Um Dan Littman, I think, is at New York State Uni. Ivalio Ivanov is now at Columbus State Uni. But what greatly interested me is the priming of the human gut, how a good guy could become a bad guy if you didn't look after it or if something else happened to rob it of a break. Yeah. Take us through just the shortened version of this. I mean, this is really interesting research. Mm. And for an, we're going to be putting papers and papers and papers up on the yeah. FX Medicine website for people about this, about this whole subject, because there's so much to do with it. And as I said, this is where research really touches clinical mm. practice. Knowing mm. about this stuff gives a clinician the power to be able to knowingly, not thoughtlessly disrupt change and maybe change the trajectory of inflammation in another human being's life, not by treating the person, but by treating or managing the ecology of the gut. So the SFBs are fascinating because they are both symbionts and pathobionts at the same time. The gut ecology is way more complicated than we had ever made out. We've said before oh, in yeah. these why is human breast milk so incredibly complex in its glycans? You know, there is this thing about birth through a vagina and human breast milk, and the breast milk seems ridiculously overcomplicated compared to most other mammals. We are way more kind of diverse in the glycans in the milk. When the mucin layer forms over the gut wall, it's not a simple bit of, you know, muck on the top. It's a bilayer. There's two different layers. The deeper layer is filled with the glycans, but they vary in different spots all the way along the gut. What it's like is a garden where you are planting different things in different areas and you are harvesting the benefits. So there is a temporal sequence of coming in the top end, low numbers of bacteria in the stomach, and then uh, as you go down, getting more and more and more diverse and more numerous. And that is a consequence of a very sophisticated layering of the mucin layer, of the bacteria that thrive in those particular circumstances with those particular glycans, and then an immune response, which is so superbly developed. We call it innate and acquired, but in fact, innate immunity is not innate. If you have a sterile gut, you do not develop innate immunity. That's right, yeah. You need these things, which we think of almost on the edge of pathogens. These are clostridium organisms. Mm. These are 
difficult to grow, almost impossible to grow out of the gut, but they are numerous, they're filamented, um, and what they seem to do is induce an immune response which can pick up. It's almost like an exercise program for the immune system. Mm. Pay attention to these, learn how to defend, get your TH17 cells in place, get the regulatory cells in place. If you're too nice as the bacteria in the gut, the immune response of the host is malfunctional. It is poor. It doesn't develop properly. So there has to be this kind of slightly torturing, we will It's cross. like a slap to wake yeah, up, isn't it? it is. It's like slapping the baby when it's one to support. Well, I, I don't support that either. <laughs> but it is, it is an intentional stimulus. And we, it reminds me of Star Trek Into Darkness where Scotty says, he's talking about the machinery that drives it. It's like Can't a bomb. Can't do it any faster. It's like a bomb ready to go off at any given moment. And when you look at the microbial environment yeah. in the gut, what is amazing is that we can survive it. This is a bomb ready to go off. Mm. Why and how we do it has been the mystery and the solving of that mystery the, segment, the segmental filamentous bacteria have an enormous part to play in that. They test the edges of the immune response. They help develop uh, innate immunity in the gut. The payers patches and the general submucosal immunity are both stimulated by that. And they're stimulated to the point that they do not go over-aggressive and they stay within boundaries and almost like a school to learn what's normal on the other side of the gut. Now, I want to give a very brief story because... Many years ago, I saw children adopted from Africa by parents who brought them along, good integrative practitioner. We want to do stool testing. We want to find out what is, you know, how these kids have managed. They've come from Africa, terrible environment. And what we saw in the stool test was pathogen after pathogen. It was, we, we looked at it and we thought, how do these kids even survive? Their gut flora is so distorted, so terrible that we, we were amazed that they could even maintain weight. So we put them on probiotics. But what we put them on was probiotics for normal Western children. Uh, and milk-based probiotics. Milk-based probiotics, you're mostly, quite right. Mostly milk-based probiotics. Yeah. But uh, what we did is we made a mess. That, anyway. <laughs> we made a mess of yeah. these children. Yeah. We achieved a gut result that looked more normal. The children got so sick with it that they were really at risk of dying. And we had to back off and just allow for the fact that in their development, through their early year of life, the early years of life, their schooling had been in how to tolerate things that any Australian child would not ever yeah. have tolerated. Yeah. And so tolerance was built. The SFBs are down there doing their job to say, yep, here's what's normal. Leave these things alone. Do not go to battle with these or you will not survive. And so... There is region-to-region region variation, which is going to be just magnificent research to be done across the world. How do we solve malnutrition? We get to understand the gut of the children who live in different societies with different foods, with different probiotic origins, and we learn how that tolerance occurs to the things that would be possibly even fatal to Australian kids. So having said that, I'm just really making the point that depending on what your environment is around birth and in those early years of life, these segmented filamentous bacteria are critical to you sampling the world of the gut, developing tolerance to it, having the immune system ready to pick up on invaders that may disturb that tolerance. And it's not just SFBs. They're the most important one that we know of right at the moment. But there's also the two helicobacters, the hepaticus and the pylori. 
These are, again, ones that organisms that will test the immune system and when the host is healthy, will stay in abeyance. They won't cause disease. When the host is out of balance, when the immune system is over-aggressive, when, say, gluten for gluten-reactive people comes into the picture, these are organisms that can become pathological and can cause, say, helicobacter, we know, ulceration and maybe even cancer in the stomach. And that may be strain-dependent as well. It There's is very Really, really interesting work by Martin Blazer, one of my favourite microbiota um, authors. Right. Martin Blazer looks at helicobacter pylori in another light. Right. As what? How does as, it as a commensal. Yeah. With, you know, but, you know, there may be strain issues, there may be terrain issues, yeah. as you say. And there are certainly host issues. And so th yeah. that, that's the other thing that we do know about pathobionts is that they're not pathological in a healthy host where the strains self-organize, where mm. the immunology, the innate immunity and the acquired immunity learn the boundaries. And those boundary conditions around the gut are so, so critical. So if you think of the pathobionts more as testers and organizers and exercisers of an immune response that keeps the immune regulation up, that makes the um, immune response very definitely respond when a new pathogen crosses and it's ready to go, if you think of them that way, they're not really pathobionts. They are opportunists. They will take advantage of a host where uh, reg the regulation of immunity has gone down. And where do we see that problem most commonly these days? We see it post-antibiotics or with uh, immune suppression when we give immunosuppressive drugs for say, cancer or for autoimmune disease. Those are areas where we disturb that gut balance and these are bugs which we have to pay much more attention to in arthritis, with rheumatoid disease, with thyroiditis. The things that we are now being coming aware of is that gut and autoimmunity are so closely linked that oh, they yeah. may be the same thing. There may be no difference between gut and autoimmunity. And in clinical practice, truly, management of the gut has by far the most profound effect I have seen on diminishing inflammatory responses in autoimmune disorders like lupus and thyroid disease. You know, I've learned so much from Mike Ash on this, uh, about the tipping point uh, with regards to inflammatory-based or autoimmune diseases, whereby if you can get them just under this tipping point line, you, you don't have to get them way under, you can get them just under, and sometimes their symptoms disappear. So that talks, it really discusses the terrain of the host. And, and if you just get it healthy enough, that mm. sometimes you can get, make a magical difference. Well, that's what you would expect if there's a regulation process that goes there. It's when it gets dysregulated beyond a point that yeah. we get symptomatic yeah. uh, outcomes. And I, I would just say, lupus patients, arthritis patients, they'll get better overnight. They tell you my trajectory turned when my gut was under control. So it's not that the inflammation's gone 24 hours later. This is not like a drug. It's profound in the sense that once tolerance is re-established, once balance is re-established, they pick the time that when their gut was right, the arthritis, the thyroiditis, the energy availability, those things became normal or started to become normal again. It can take two years for that to work out. But it's the trajectory has changed. They're not getting worse. They're getting better when the gut gets right.
You know, this, this, I mean, it falls into the, um, the podcast that I spoke to with um, Clint Patterson and his recovery from rheumatoid arthritis. Basically, one of the key things that I took away from there was fresh foods. So it was, it, we're talking about what foods do to microbiota. But the other thing was getting rid of all, all oils. And I went, what? Because fish oil for me as a natural health practitioner mm -hmm. is something that you would automatically include. And he said, no. Even avocados, anything with a high amount of oil in it, he got rid of. Really interesting stuff. Talking about which microbiota you are feeding. Right. Um, it would be so interesting to assay that sort of, what sort of changes he would be making to the microbiota, microbiome. Um, so the genetic signatures as well as the species. Yeah. Um, that are populating the gut. One point I would like to make, um, that we spoke about SFBs, we're moving on from there, but about SFBs, um, and it's a point about we can't measure it, therefore it doesn't exist. You know, like this stuff was only just discovered because you couldn't culture it. Mm. So just because you can't culture it doesn't mean it's not there. Just because you can't see it on a poo test doesn't mean it's not on the wall. Yeah. It just means it's not in the poo. So we've got to think about relevant testing. That's another podcast you and I are going that to is. do. So it's one of these conundrums about testing, particularly with regards to the gut. Do we, you we do overrate testing, though. I mean, yeah, believe so, me, so you know, the medical model is we overrate testing and underrate the things that we don't know. What we don't know that we don't know has been a problem with the gut for maybe 100 years. Oh, yeah. And so we discount it only to turn around in the early 21st century and say it's probably the most important modulator of immunology in the whole body. Mm. And what's inside the gut is more important than all the stuff that we've done on acquired and innate immunity, thinking of it as human immunity, whereas innate and acquired immunity are a negotiated response between yes. microbes in the gut and our immune cells. It is a balance between them and it's a gardener's balance. It is the same as our balance with soil and plants and foods. And I still come back to, you know, eat foods, not too much, mainly plants. Mm. That balance, I, I can understand where his problems with the oils may arise, but I still would say we know the short chain fatty acids are incredibly essential. Now, that is soluble fiber, and it may also be some of the oils that are in the diet. Which you is can't interesting get rid to of me. Them completely. What's yeah. that? Well, it was interesting to me trying to, trying to ratify that. Yeah. You know, the butyrate equals butter, or butter equals butyrate. Take it out in, a, in rheumatoid arthritis. Yeah. So, but that may fall into this when is a symbiont a pathobiont. Mm. You know, I've been speaking recently with Professor Stephen Sandberg-Lewis on the subject of SIBO. I've spoken previously before that with Narala Jacobi, an expert yeah. in SIBO in Australia. And, and this is very often the good guys overgrowing, but yeah. it's because you've made it so, you know, that, so it's kind of like how much does a host take, yes. um, how many hits does a host take? I'm reminded of, um, it's touted that Louis Pasteur on his deathbed, you know, sort of whispered, groaned, you know, it's not the germ, it's the host. Now, apparently, I've read up about this and apparently he never said that. No, it's unlikely he'd deny unlikely. his wife's work. Yeah. yeah. As one of the most <laughs> yeah, famous one people. Of the, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you but don't do that. However, 
I think, as you say, one of the greatest discoveries or acceptances in the early 21st century was that the gut is the seat of the major part of the body's immune system, uh, up to 80% I was reading, including secretory IgA and more important or more proliferative is the IgG, mm. um, but the IgA is non-inflammatory whereas the IgG is an attack system, yeah. if you like, a response. And IgA is a, a, a protective front. A, a thing that just occurred to me then, what we are learning is it's not single cause, single effect. We're, we're out of the time of the single cause for every disease. What's appearing, whether you deal with planetary ecology or human ecology, gut ecology, is that diversity and ability to change over time, and diversity and adaptability are the hallmarks of a healthy person. Yeah. It's not that there's a right microbiome. There's a right we microbiome <laughs> for a season. There's not a strain that wins the battle. Yeah. There's a disturbance and an ability to adapt to that disturbance. And I think in many ways what we do as clinicians is we have, I don't know if you remember the old televisions, the cathode ray tubes. I remember. When things went wrong, what you did is you belted it on the right and if that didn't work, you hit the left. And then the left. <laughs> it gave it a slam on the top and it worked and it got the picture back. So what we learned was, oh, you slam this TV on the top and that's what makes it work properly. And we're at that stage still in clinical work of saying, wow, you've got distorted gut. What do we think that means? Well, our tradition in medicine is to think, oh, that must be a pathogen down there. That must be a streptococcus. That must be an invader. And it seems like we were wrong. That mindset is a Pasteurian mindset that is now probably past when it comes to the gastrointestinal tract. Shigella, salmonella, there are bugs there which are pure invaders. And what's our primary defense? The normal microbes of the gut. It's not, we, we are not defending ourselves with an aggressive immune attack. And our immune Most microbes yeah. do the job of pissing off hmm. the people that, or the bugs that come along that are not welcome there that disturb that balance. So we rely on building a defense system where inflammation is not even part of what happens, where the normal microbes create the netting, the, the, um, the biofilms create the environment, which is not invi invitational to any pathogenic organism. And in fact, they take them on. Occasionally that gets disrupted and we get the diarrhea illnesses, the Shigella salmonella, hmm. All hell breaks out. Immunology goes to work. The, the pathogens either win or they don't win, and then we restore normal balance. But those hits are not terrible for us. Our ability to take hits and resiliently come back seems to be the hallmark of good, healthy and, people. And that, it to me, is the difference. You know, this is what Stephen Sandberg Lewis taught me about the one of the one of the etiologies of SIBO was you know a Campylobacter infection, Campylobacter jejuni. They recover from that. But because the toxins might be knocking out one of the motility um, stimuli, you've now got a motility issue in the small intestine where it slows down motility up here, therefore allowing more fer fermentation. Yeah. You may get diarrhea in the colon, but in the upper intestines, you've got a lowered motility yeah. and this fermentation process going on. So it's just really interesting how you might quote unquote recover from it but the long-term effects are that you've now got a disrupted yeah. landscape. Um, and it smacks to me of this, you know, the same sort of thing going on with complex regional pain syndrome. The, the wound's healed, but the pain remains. Yes. You know, how do we get people back to nor a normal functioning from this? Well, it, really interesting it is, treatment options. It is not only interesting. I mean, when you raised IgA, 
immunoglobulin A is in fact one of the things that the segmented filamentous bacteria are part of the process of creating. That's right. They make us make yeah. IgA in response to it. Yeah, yeah that's appropriate right. to the regulation of themselves. So the the extraordinary story seems to be some of the bacteria in the gut stimulate the response to pick a fight with them to keep them at bay. It's almost like we like being jailed here. We've got a happy gut. <laughs> keep us here, master. <laughs> Unless you think of it the other way, which is, master, what should we do to keep you here? <laughs> you can have it either one being the boss there. Yeah. The, uh, the helper cells, the TH17, we used to say, that the CD8, the suppressor, immunosuppressor, what we regarded as the suppressive T lymphocytes, one out of every 10 cells in the gut was said to be CD8. So 10% of the enterocytes were in fact an immune cell that was not really the pure CD8, it was a regulatory cell. We didn't have the sophistication early to understand that these are what we now call TH17s, the regulatory T cells. Those TH17s are not a pure line of cells. They swap roles. The TH17 can, be, can become a different expressor and the regulatory lymphocytes are continually being taught by the pathobionts and the symbionts about what's normal and what's not. They rise and fall according to need, not according to absolute numbers. And healthy people keep on having rises and falls within a reasonable range. Homeostasis. That's right. That helps us understand that the microbes regulate our immunology and our immunology sets the boundaries for those microbes. And I think the the future of this, if you had the ideal thing, I'm not sure that this will ever work out, breast milk for adults, the glycans in there may reestablish it. We don't know for sure that that's the case, but it's not going to pass TGA regulations. <laughs> I'm just pretty no. convinced that you're not going down that path. What I could say, though, is beyond breast milk, we still have things like colostrum, you know, colostrum products and regulatory proteins that come in via the diet. And it is remarkable how many people respond to good colostrum products. When you think of it, why would that be the case? These are cows producing immunologically modulating molecules for carbs. Mm. But it just shows you that get into the rough area of re-regulation and the gut, given a belt on the side, a hit on the top, or whatever it is we're doing, is capable of re-regulating itself. We don't mm. have to nanny it back to perfect health. Yeah. We have to get back a rough balance so that the IgA, the TH17 cells, the, the bacteria are all saying, okay, balance is resettled, let's go back to our cycles again. And they will rise and fall, and we will rise and fall, and that's not pathological. When it gets pathological, as biodiversity is lost, we know that through some of the studies now that as genetic biodiversity of our microbiome drops, and I'm, I'm really hanging out for the tests that we can do with that, not what's the specific strain. I know Bioscreen in Melbourne and others do this where they look, here's the strain, here's the bug, why don't we attack that or why don't we do something about that? But I think the much more important number for a, a general practitioner or naturopath is What's the biodiversity like? Is biodiversity in the gut good? And if it isn't, what can we do to stimulate biodiversity? Get those segmented filamentous bacteria and the helicobacters back into their role of re-regulating immunity without doing any damage. 
We so, get biodiversity in the gut. We get health. That's the, some of the studies done a few years ago in nature showed that when you established biodiversity, when you increase genetic diversity of the gut bacteria, C-reactive protein, inflammation markers drop away, and that's associated with better perceived health by the hosts. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that notwithstanding that humans are one of the only animals on earth that doesn't wean, um, and there, you know, there may be certain choices that people have to make with regards to milk consumption, but I think there's a real and underutilized place for the use of colostrum to help give a bolus dose mm. of secretory IgA, IgG, um, lactoferrin, lactoproxidase, those sort of anti-infective type wax, yeah. you know, a, a smack on the bum sort of thing. When you have a clinical need to do so as a reset, not for, yeah. you know, forever and a day, but to, as a short-term sort of yep. usage. And I, re I, like, I have gotten such brilliant results, particularly in short-term infections, but I do wonder about the use of things like Saccharomyces boulardii, LGG, then known probiotics that can stimulate secretory IgA. Glutamine can stimulate secretory IgA, healing of the gut. And interleukin-10, I mean, the IL-10 is an important component of immune modulation on the gut as well. So, so what would you give to induce IL-10? The Saccharomyces is a, is a good example. I mean, one of the values of the Saccharomyces, but there are a bunch of different mm. bacteria. It's not one. It's that we're, we're trying to change the game down there from a pro-inflammatory tendency where the low-grade stimulation of the pathobionts is enough to keep turning things over in a negative way for the host. Mm -hmm. How do you change it? We're still in a crude area of research which says, well, this looks like biodiversity improves things. What does that mean? The only paper that we really have still is cut all the, glucose, uh, cut all the sugars out go to a high-fat, high-protein diet temporarily. It reduces bacterial numbers, but it increases bacterial diversity in the gut. And remember, through all of this, we haven't even touched on the other microbes in the gut. We're no. still talking about the microbiome as though it's only bacteria. There's a hundred viruses, viruses for every single yeah. one, for every single bug. Um, we are grossly outnumbered. Archaea. We have the archaea, the, the uh, methane-producing archaea, which is, again, a fascinating group. They're, you know, the Bacteroides firmicutes, I call them firmicutes. Firmicutes. You say firmicutes, I say firmicutes. <laughs> I think firmicutes are great, is a great name. <laughs> but the Bacteroides firmicutes and the methanogens. And so we've got three big classes that have tended to dominate the human gastrointestinal tract. Everyone knows what methane's like. Plenty of people have lit it at parties <laughs> at various times <laughs> in their past. So the archaea are critical to a part of the function there as well. Mm. So we have two different kingdoms or domains of our life within us. And we've acted for all of our scientific careers until the last decade as though they are irrelevant to life. Whereas now I think we're finding they're critical to what we regard as health. What we perceive as health is largely to a great part determined by what goes on in the gastrointestinal tract. And getting that right is now the job of every good clinician. I think you won't get much argument from natural healthcare practitioners yeah. or integrative doctors. 
but it has been so hard to convince the medical community that it is not a methotrexate deficiency or a prednisone deficiency. We used to call prednisone in the 1980s vitamin P in hospitals because we knew that you could suppress immunity for everybody. And what we did to the guts of people with that process over that decade where we thought, hey, we've got a magic answer to everything, is we could turn off immune responses the cost of it is just horrendous. And oh, look what we've what we done with antibiotics. Yeah. I have, <laughs> and I now, have major now, concern <laughs> about that. What I will say, I was wrong. Right? I've told this story before. Tom Barodi, Centre for Digestive Diseases, back in the uh, 1980s, I was seeing people going to him and getting these antibiotics. And I was convinced on principle that this was a terrible and harmful thing. And we did work. And those 42 patients and the specifics of it were more than six months of continual antibiotics, sleep disorders, gastrointestinal problems, mainly irritable bowel syndrome, not uh, ulcerative colitis, prior to the onset of this treatment. And the fecal transplants with a single given host for those people was transformative. It changed my mind, and it's not easy to change my mind. Uh, You know, I sail in a direction and it goes that way until something's really powerful. But that transformed... 38 of the 42 people's lives in terms of fatigue, sleep, and gut. And I had to admit that I was wrong. But a very expensive option. Well, not just very expensive. It didn't work on the redoing. So everybody that got well and said, gee, I'm glad I did that. And there were some downsides to it. But everyone that got well eventually came back at another time. Either they had antibiotics or under stress. Something went wrong. And they and I both said, oh, well, let's get back and let's do it a second time. And the second time was nothing like the first time. It mm. almost never worked. So for me, the lesson was you can do a disruption. You can do the atom bomb once. Mm. You can't go back and do the atom bomb approach again and again. And we have to learn something that is different that reestablishes this balance of the uh, pathobionts and the symbionts. Mm. And it's not as easy as just pressing the reset button and everybody returns to normal. Just quickly, there's two other areas I want to cover. One of them we've done a separate podcast on, but I do want to cover off a little bit on, and that's Candida. But yeah. the one first that I want to talk about is Helminths and the, mm. the, the prospect of their use, particularly in autoimmune conditions, but in other conditions as well. I think one- Celiac disease. Celiac, yeah, yeah. I was looking at celiac. So where are we at? You know, there's stuff, there's work done by Monash now. Yeah. James Cook Uni. Mm-hmm. I, and I have patients. I have patients on these. You can purchase these from centres overseas of particular helmets that have got particular specificity for particular diseases. It's at the beginning of this whole story, I think. Yeah. But that's what I said. The other bugs that are in the gut, we've had to focus on bacteria simply because that seemed doable. You could test the genes. We know bacterial genes. It's hard to pick viral genes. And it's really hard to pick what the impact of bigger organisms the candida and then the multicellular organisms like helminths. But what I can say is that at the clinician's level, people with the helminth infections are protected against a lot of allergic disorders. I have people that have very high potential for allergy. And when you see the raised eosinophils and you see the raised IgA, uh, sorry, IgE, you think, hmm, is this really allergy or not? Their story was severe allergy. When they get the hermenthic infections, they in fact put all of those resources towards looking after helminths and they leave the allergies alone. 
I think in autoimmunity, it's going to be a little more complex, but the initial studies, because these laboratories do give out the studies which show that there is alteration of that, mm. for celiac disease, there's pretty good evidence that you could do something which changes the regulation and inflammation in the upper part of the gut where you get the disruption of the villi. For thyroiditis, there's even some information that says these may alter the trajectory of autoimmune-type processes elsewhere in the body. Celiac disease is an autoimmune process. So, you know, we thought of it as tropical sprue, and there is something that takes it to the gut wall. But of all the people with celiac disease genes, the DQ2 and DQ8, only 10% ever get celiac disease. Mm -hmm. 90% don't. But they do get thyroiditis so at a very, very high level. So one line of thinking is you have distorted gut immunity, you then get a bug that comes along, say a Yersinia, and the Yersinia is very specifically similar to the thyroid, and so in susceptible people with these DQ2 and DQ8 genetics, Yersinia in the gut triggers a thyroiditis. And we know that more than 50% of females with those genes end up, with, if they're gluten eaters, end up with a thyroiditis. So there's a whole interplay. What's in the diet? What's your genetics? What are the microbes that you develop at birth and how do you culture those microbes? It plays out as a very complex time series. And we as clinicians are left with a point in time where a person comes and complains to us. Why do I have three-hour consultations? Partly because at the beginning, I need to know what was your early history of life? Were you breastfed? Was it vaginal birth? Did you go to preschools? Were you sick all the time? Mm. These are questions that when you have time to ask them, entirely make sense of what happens as an adult. Even people in their 60s and 70s, we can trace it back to those kind of origins and where the illness originated. And I would put it as about 50% of the time that the gastrointestinal tract has taken the hit and inflammation, the origins of those inflammation are with the gut. Even people who've got used to it, you ask the specifics, do you get diarrhea? Oh yeah, I get diarrhea every couple of weeks. Why? No idea, I've had it all my life. That's not normal. You wow. don't get diarrhea all your life. You may get used to it, but that doesn't mean that it's normal. The more common ex uh, presentation is people saying, I get bloating, wind and constipation. We used to say, oh, that's candida. You know, if we give an antifungal, we're going to get you better. What it was is I think more like we're discovering now with SIBO, that there is peristalsis changes, there's gas production and there's fermentation, and that hurts. There's almost nothing in the gut that really hurts apart from that stretch receptor. So what we may be able to get, and this you know, relates to the Bioceutical Symposium this year, if we get an understanding of how that process of gas production and peristaltic loss happens... Mm then doing something about that, and I would be hoping that the symposium is not going to be, I'll just give antibiotics for it, because rifaximin, oh, rifaximin is the kind of darling of our profession right at the moment. No, we give no, that to was, people and they get better. No, there was some very interesting study on SIBO looking at um, herbs, and basically herbs worked as well, if not better than right. um, rifaximin for SIBO, and there was a whole antibiotic regime, which, you know, um, I think Stephen Sandberg-Lewis said it was on 600-odd people. Right. Um, so it really interesting study. Again, we'll put that up on FX okay. Medicine website for our listeners but to But it's a good reason to attend this year's symposium. Because, oh, absolutely. You know, dealing with those areas <laughs> of gut and the management of that, that is the job of sustaining normal immunity, normal nutrition, 
and building health. And without those three, you know, there, yes, there's genetics to it. Mm. People are predisposed to get autoimmune disorders and celiac type disorders. Get them off grains early in life, that seems to not progress at all. So I think there's going to be value to us understanding the genetic predispositions of inflammation and getting advice to parents in the early years of life. Don't put your kids on wheat bix as the very first thing you do after three months of breastfeeding. Do have vaginal births. Do breastfeed for as long as possible. Get them onto vegetables and things which are going to build normal immunological tolerance down in the gut. And then later on, when they're teenagers, let them go and try bread. It doesn't seem to then set the trajectory for the thyroiditis and the autoimmune and the celiac type disorders later on in life. So we have to learn new tricks as doctors. We're not just treating the person in front of us. We're treating the generation behind and the generation ahead. Paying attention to what is inherited, paying attention to the process of birth, glycation, the kind of giving the right glycans in breast milk, sustaining the health of mothers. What did we hear just this month is the new initiatives in diabetes focus on pregnancy and breastfeeding as the way of managing the diabetic crisis. That's a transformation, but it means we're paying attention to the right thing for a change. So there, that's the clinical work. What you do for the person I am keen to find out the non-drug approaches to SIBO mm. in the symposium. Mm. I'm very keen to find out what we can do for an individual. How do we separate one from another and why one gets sick and one why, why one does not? And how do we get the symbionts up? The symbionts are those that in large numbers settle an immune response. They don't stimulate it. They allow you to get back. And there's really good evidence that we can do stuff about the big ones like ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease and celiac disease, that manipulation of the bugs, whether they're helminths, whether they're other bacteria, whether they're the kind of segmented filamentous bacteria, that we can change trajectories of things that we regarded as the domain of specialist gastroenterologists mm. in the past. We've done, you and I have done a podcast on Candida previously. Mm. And I just want a quick sort of wrap up, if you like, of Candida, Albicans, Glabrata, or Tropicalis. You practice in Sydney. Tropicalis is said to be not very common, but I wonder if there's a ge going to be a geographical difference in the more tropical areas. Mm. And that's not to think about living outside the body, but talking about how the body has to cope with a hotter environment, wearing right. clothes. Mm. Does it favour that sort of the growth of tropicalis in a higher, sorry, a, a lower latitude nearer the equator? Yeah, a lot's going to happen as global warming occurs, and <laughs> the, you know the global tropicalis warming, everywhere. The, the global warming <laughs> of our internals is probably going to be down the line. There are changes how, in how the distribution of these. How does treatment differ as well? Uh, that I don't know. Mm. So I, I can't honestly help you out there. I see mainly when it's pathogenic, the Candida glabrata species are the ones that, shall we say, keep on popping up. Right. And the Candida albicans, these are on that, on that borderline between commensal organisms and invasive organisms. Yeah, yeah. I still to this day see Candida as a Candida and the variants of it as mainly a problem for Richie Shoemaker's group of the highly yeast mold reactive, the mycotoxin reactive. Some of us go off like a firecracker when yeast and molds are around in small numbers, whether inhaled, ingested, or any other way. And that's a loss of immunological tolerance, which is exactly what we've talked about yep. all today. Yep. How do we reestablish that tolerance for a person who's pushed beyond that edge? I see it also as the atrogenic disease. 
our use of steroids, our use of antibiotics, our use of the oral contraceptive pill has primarily made the vagina the ideal breeding ground for a lot of women to develop these fungi. For many, it's innocuous. For others, it is a lifelong battle that the gastrointestinal tract and the, and the um, vagina are never settled. They're always in a state of low-grade inflammation. And for those people, candida treatment is not killing all the bugs. It's giving its competitors a chance to flourish and bringing the numbers down to that tolerable level. And then what we do on the human side is how to induce tolerance. Mm. Now, I think that's going to be played out still on the gastrointestinal tract much more than it is with drug therapies and the things that we've done in the past. In the past, we crudely hit it all with drugs and with herbs and with diets. I am a big fan of low sugars in the diet low free sugars, especially things where there is a fructose and a glucose component yeah. together, yeah. Yeah. those are probably the primary ways that we are going to manipulate the gut ecology and inflammation control. And if we can get a good, stable answer about what we can do to provide energy for people, provide the foods that they need, and get them to break that sugar addiction, which is a whole generation in coming, if we could get that to be broken, we can establish normal inflammatory response control on the gut. We'll put the rheumatologists out of business, truly. The gastroenterologists and the rheumatologists should be living in the same building. They should be mating and having children that cover those two specialties because the gut and autoimmunity and inflammation, that's where the future of this lies. Dr. Mark Donahoe, thank you so much for taking our listeners through the quagmire of the symbionts and pathobionts, or at least some of them, that um, you know pop up from time to time and cause issues when the host just isn't at, at its wellest, if, if I could say that. I have a simple mind of a clinician. <laughs> I think that that's it. The focus on a patient, the person in front of us, really clarifies a lot of stuff. This is complicated, but in the end, people that you do something to who get better come back and tell you that they've done better. And we, in a sense, we can kind of lead research as well as follow it. That when things work, lots of things that are in research don't. But these things of managing the gut, it's transformative to any doctor or any practitioner, whoever starts to get it right. And it leads you to do things like, you know, be a, be a proselyte for stewed apples, for example. Once you find tools to do this, it's addictive and people's health recovery is just transformative. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This podcast was proudly brought to you by Bioceuticals, leaders in nutraceuticals and education for healthcare professionals. Hi, I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Here at FX Medicine, we strive to remain clinically relevant. So stay in touch with us and please let us know how we're doing. We love hearing from you. You can email info at fxmedicine.com.au or contact us via Facebook, Twitter and Instagram.